Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 16 this morning. I'm going to move to this side so the floor doesn't squeak. They got me all freaked out because that side squeaks over there, so now I'm afraid of that side. So as my wife and family will attest, I am probably the most patient person you'll ever meet. In fact, my parents should have named me Job. You know, the patience of Job thing, right? Actually, I'm being a little facetious here. I don't like to wait. I am not a very patient person. When I want something, I want it, and I want it now. I don't want to have to wait for it, especially if it involves other people. I have an intolerance for slow people. So no, I am not the most patient person you're ever going to be. Now, I do a fairly decent job, I think, masking that sometimes. You know, it's sort of like when you're aware of one of your faults or frailties, you try to compensate for it and pretend maybe that you're more like that. And so I can oftentimes do a somewhat decent job, not always great, but somewhat decent job of being patient and, and waiting. I had a great example of this. A few, quite a few years back, we were redoing Kimberly and Katie's bathroom so it involved you know I had somebody come in and do a lot of the work and but the, we were going to keep the cabinet the existing cabinet and uh, so I decided just to paint it white but it desperately needed new doors and there's a guy in our neighborhood who builds cabinets just he's a retired engineer and he does it kind of on the side and he mostly does it for people in the neighborhood he does beautiful work so I had him make me some custom doors and I was just going to finish those off myself and paint them. I have a fair amount of experience painting. I know how to paint, and I'm always very careful. And I'm, I'm a very, um, some would, I'm a perfectionist. Some would call it being anal, but I'm a perfectionist. And so I usually, when I do things, I want to do them really right, you know. But I was kind of pressed for time, and I thought, you know what, I just want to get these things done. And so I set aside a day, and I had all day to do, you know, to spend on these two doors. And so I thought, I'm just going to take the whole day to do it. And so. Pulled the doors out, set everything up in the garage, you know, got them ready to go. But instead of wanting to take the time to go get some new primer for them, I just decided to use whatever I had in the basement. And all I had in the basement was some old um, oil-based primer. Now, there's a difference between oil-based primer and latex-based primer. And oil-based primer oftentimes takes a little longer to dry. But I thought, I got this, right? And so I went down there and I opened up the can and I could tell that it had separated some. And you really should take that down to a Home Depot or to a Walmart or somebody that's got a shaker and get them to shake it up so that it's all completely, you know, mixed exactly as it should. But I thought, I don't have the time for that. I'm just going to mix it with a stick. So I got a paint stick and I just stirred it up myself and did the best job that I could to get it all nice, you know. And then I decided to go ahead and start coating it, so I painted on it. And I'm careful about that, and I get everything on there real nice, you know. But, remember, I want to get this done. I don't have any patience. I don't have time to do what the directions say, which is to let this dry for 24 to 48 hours before applying the latex paint over the top of an oil-based primer. I thought, time? I've got fans! So I went downstairs, and I had these two giant fans, and I aimed them at these doors, and I fired them up, you know, and I'm looking at my watch going, it's only 10 a.m. i got plenty of time, you know? So I put the fans on, you know, and I go out there, and I think it was probably an hour or two. Now, the, again, the paint can says 24 to 48 hours before you put the latex paint on it. I went out there, and I touched them. They felt fine. 
They were dry to the touch. Everything was great. So I went ahead, got the latex paint out, went ahead and slathered that on, got it all nice, you know, paid attention, and it's nice and pretty, you know. Once again, it says right on the can that you should probably wait, I think it was at least four hours or something, before you put on the next coat of paint. Pshaw! I got fans. So I get those fans going again, you know, and I go out there in 45 minutes to an hour, touch it, it's all dry. I can put a second cone of paint on it. So I put that second cone of paint on, I look at my watch and I'm thinking, man, it's only something like noon, one o'clock, I got time for lunch even. So I start the fans, I get all that kind of going, and I go back out there a little bit later and touch it and they all felt great. It looked beautiful, you know, nice white doors, you know. I was able to flip them over and do the other side, you know. I think by six or seven o'clock that night I had everything done. They looked gorgeous. And I know before you hang the doors, you're probably really supposed to wait for them to really completely dry. But they felt fine. I had the fans on them, you know. So what did I do? Took them upstairs. I put them in place. They were all, and I'm done. It's like 10 o'clock. We're good. Till the next morning. I walked in that bathroom to admire these beautiful doors that I had spent the day before working on. Creak, creak, creak. They looked like a 120-year-old retiree from Florida that had been sitting out in the sun too long. These things were crinkly and wrinkled and all puckered and looked... I'll say, they looked disgusting. I even looked at it and was like, oh, this is gross. Because that latex paint as it had started to dry pulled on that oil-based stuff beneath it that wasn't dry and it just caused everything to pucker. And I'm thinking, oh. So my plan of just blowing with the fan, thinking I knew better than the manufacturers who said, wait, 24 to 48 hours, I should have went and got, I should have taken the time to get the new primer and probably gotten a latex-based primer. I should have waited the proper amount of time before I painted, not just putting the paint on, but then also between the paint coat and everything else. And I should have just taken the time because now I had to spend that whole entire day with some mineral spirits and a scraper and some steel wool and then I had to wait for all that stuff to dry because it kind of soaks into the wood and then I had to sand it you know and then I had to wait I don't think I painted or primed it then until the next day but then I took my time and I did it just as I should so all because I don't like to wait and I thought there were some shortcuts I could take I thought that I don't need to pay attention to what the cans say. And again, I had painted quite a bit when I was in seminary. I painted as a job for part of that time, you know. With my first house, I painted the whole entire house myself, you know. When we got our new house, I painted all of that. You know, so I knew, but I was impatient. Didn't want to wait. I say all that and share that story because I think one of the things that we seem to be plagued with as Christians, especially in the American church, is the inability, or maybe it's just an unwillingness, to wait on the Lord sometimes. You know, our lives as Christians, in many respects, is a waiting game. You know, I mean, you think about it, the big picture, we've been waiting 2,000 years for Christ to return. You know, when we get saved, not everything changes, right? We have to sort of wait. Growth is a slow, maturing process. Nothing changes overnight. It's not like all of a sudden we're healed of everything, of our sin nature and all that. It's just a a process. And so 
In many respects, you've heard it said before that the Christian life is not a sprint, but it's a marathon. It's a long, slow slog sometimes. And there's an awful lot of waiting. When we have a struggle or something we need, and we need God's attention, or we need His help, and we pray, the answers don't always come immediately, do they? We have to sometimes wait. Just wait for the Lord. You know, Kimberly applied for a full-time job down at the Ark Encounter, and when she did her internship, it was a long, I think, three or four months of waiting because the communication stunk. Well, now she's applied for this full-time job, and she had her first interview, and now she's been waiting. And every week she sends a follow-up, and she doesn't hear anything, and she's waiting. And it's like, how long do I wait? And so there's a temptation to not want to wait for it. So again, whether it's an inability or just an unwillingness, we seem to have a problem waiting sometimes. Now maybe you don't, so if I've lumped you into that category and you don't have a problem waiting, then, you know, just let me know. (laughs) But I would assume that most of you are like many of us, that we don't always like to wait on the Lord. In the Old Testament, the imagery of waiting on the Lord is ultimately used to portray someone who seeks the Lord by placing their faith and trust fully in Him. That's the concept of waiting on the Lord. It's this idea of just trusting. It's not just waiting, twiddling your thumbs. It's literally placing your faith and trust and waiting for the Lord to answer your concern or to answer your issue or to care for your need. So that's really ultimately what we're talking about this morning is this idea of waiting on the Lord. It's not always easy to do. Instead of continuing to wait on the Lord, sometimes we resort to other means or actions to have our needs met or to have things resolved. And so we have on the one side or the one hand waiting on the Lord and then on the other hand, sometimes we just take matters into our own hand to sort of help Him out or to accomplish what we think needs to happen. Now on the most extreme side of that might be something like maybe we're struggling financially and so we do something that we shouldn't do to gain that money. We resort to theft or stealing or manipulation. That would be an extreme example of that where we sort of in our own head come up with a plan instead of waiting on the Lord. And so this morning we're going to see an example of that. In our passage today, We see that Sarah, and this is our primary two parts, Sarah attempts to resolve an affliction that she has through her own wisdom and through a common custom. So she has an issue, and she should wait on the Lord, because the Lord had made her a promise regarding this. But instead of waiting on Him, she takes matters into her own hand, and she just, in her own wisdom, figures out, we can get this done. And she relies on a common custom. The second half of our message this morning is that the Lord is a God who sees and responds to our affliction. Because Sarah seems to have forgotten that. That the Lord is somebody who sees and responds. We can't forget that. So when we're waiting on the Lord, we have to keep in mind that God sees, He hears, and He acts on our behalf. And if we forget that, then we're more prone to take matters into our own hand and do something that may ultimately result in some consequences that we don't like. So let's go ahead and look at that. The first part of this, again, Sarah attempts to resolve an affliction through her own wisdom and a common custom. Look at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 16. Now Sarah, Abraham's, Abraham's, or Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. 
And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan. Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maidservant or your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly and she fled from her presence. Our passage begins with this burden that weighed upon Sarai. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now to understand the weight of this, we have to keep a few things in mind. First and foremost, in the ancient Near East, a barren wife was looked down upon. She was considered a disgrace because she couldn't have children. The number one duty of a wife was to provide offspring, to provide children to the husband, at least from an ancient Near East perspective. I'm not saying that's a biblical perspective, but that's what the ancient Near East taught. It was considered a disgrace to not be able to produce children, and this disgrace extended not just to her, but sometimes to her husband, where he was looked down upon because he had no children, but even to the extended family, the parents' grandparents. And so that's what Sarai was facing. There was not only the emotional part of wanting a child and not being able to have a child, but then what the culture dictated shamed her for it. For something she could do absolutely nothing about. And so she had this this heavy burden, this weight upon her shoulders. Now if you even add to that the promise made to Abram that he would have descendants, that had to obviously weigh on her as well. I have not been able to do that. We don't know how much God's promise weighed in on this. We know at, at a minimum it was, be, it was part of the culture that she couldn't have children. There was that disgrace. But I would suspect that there's probably that element of, wait a minute, God promised us children and they're still not there. And so she had this tremendous weight on her shoulders. She was 75 years old. Now, we would naturally say that's well beyond the age of child rearing, but Back then, Abraham lived 175, had a kid when he was 100. Sarai gets pregnant 10 years after this by God's miracle, but by any stretch of the imagination, she was probably past the age of childbearing. childbearing. We know that a little bit later, 14 years later at age 89. The text in chapter 18 says specifically she was past the age of bearing children. It was impossible for her to become pregnant. I think it would be safe to conclude here at, at 75 she was probably incapable of having children. And she knew that. At this point, it had been ten years since God had promised Abram and Sarai descendants. They'd been waiting a very long time for something to happen. So there was not only this emotional weight of bearing children and the shame and disgrace that came through the culture, but it appeared she was convinced that God himself was opposed to her at this point. Notice what she says in verse 2 there. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, we might be tempted to look at that as, she's blaming God for this. He's actually preventing me. It's more likely to be interpreted as, he's not doing anything about it. And ultimately, he is responsible because he could do something about it. He made this promise. So it's probably not as drastic as we see here that she's almost shaking her fist. He's preventing me from having a baby. It's much, you know, like Kimberly sometimes will say, why would God do this? 
And what she's getting at is not that God just reached down and said, I'm going to tie your tubes, you're not going to have a baby, Sarah. But rather, he hasn't done anything about it. So ultimately, he's prevented me from having it. He hasn't intervened. And so you see the weight that she's carrying here. So what does she decide to do? Well, they resorted to what was considered normal and customary in the ancient Near East. Look at verses 1 and following again. She had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. This is essentially a servant. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And so he does just that. Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan. His wife took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. It was standard in that culture that if you as a wife could not have children, you would take your maidservant and give that maidservant to your husband as either a wife or a concubine. Now here it says wife. A little bit later in Genesis it refers to her as a concubine. Okay? So she basically does what she thought was necessary in the culture, what was accepted in the culture. If I can't have children, I'll give my husband my maidservant. And in that culture, when you did that, if that maidservant had a child, it was considered your child. And that's what Sarah says here. Maybe I can have, and she notice she says plural, I can have children through her. So what we really have here is that she is attempting to fulfill a promise that God had made using a custom from the culture. Doing what she thought was necessary and right in the culture. And it was. Culturally, she did the right thing. That doesn't necessarily make it the right thing biblically, however. And so instead of waiting on the Lord and trusting the Lord to do what the Lord had promised, she's done waiting. The Lord has closed her womb. He's prevented me. So I'll do what I think is the right thing to do. Culturally speaking. Here, take my maid. Maybe I can have children through her. But again, any child produced through that relationship, they were considered to be her children. That's the cultural norm. Now, we get the first indication here that things are not going to go well. But something that's told to us in the text. If you notice, uh, let's see here in verse, verse 3, we'll start back with again. And Abram had lived 10 years, oh, I'm sorry, verse, end of verse 2. It says, And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Do you know where that phrase is used elsewhere in the scripture? There's one other place, very specifically, where that term, or that phrase, he listened to the voice of his wife, is found. Adam and Eve, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. I don't think that's just coincidence here. Now, before I go any further, let me clarify so I don't get stoned. I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to the voice of your wife. Clearly, God has given our wives to us It says, as helpmates, meaning we can't do it without them. We are to listen to our wives. I've shared examples of that with the leader of Campus Crusade for Christ when I was in college who always learned to listen to the voice of his wife because sometimes she was more reasonable than him. That's not the lesson here. So don't walk away from here saying, Michael said, don't listen to the voice of your wife. However, in this particular instance, Abram listened to the voice of his wife. Just like Adam listened to the voice of his wife and where did it lead? Some pretty nasty, unintended consequences. Both involve sin. Now, we could try to exonerate Sarah here saying she's only doing what the culture demanded, but that does not exonerate us from sin. 
The polygamy we see in the Old Testament. Just because it was normative and just because God sort of turns a blind eye to it doesn't mean that it wasn't sin. God intended one man, one woman. Period. Okay? Taking multiple wives, even if the culture said it was okay, does not exonerate somebody from that. Okay? And so what we end up seeing here is that Abram listened to the voice of his wife, and I believe that what Moses is doing for us when he's writing this, he's making us think back. Remember the last time this happened? There were some unintended consequences, and that's exactly what we see here. Take a look at what happens. He says he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she, Hagar, saw that she had conceived, her mistress, Sarai, was despised in her sight. Did you catch that? When Hagar conceives and becomes pregnant, she now looks at Sarai with disdain. That's the first unintended consequence there. I'll let you turn here on your own, but... Pro- well, actually, you know what? Let's go ahead and do this. Proverbs chapter 30. Turn to Proverbs chapter 30. The scripture actually hints at this. Proverbs chapter 5. I'm sorry, Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. Jump down to verse 21 with me. It says, Under three things the earth quakes, and under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes king, a fool when he is satisfied with food, under an unloved woman when she gets a husband, but then look at the fourth one, and a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. What that means? When the maidservant becomes more important than the wife. Why? She's able to do what the wife can't. She's able to provide children. She's able to provide offspring. You know what's interesting is there's something called the Hammurabi's Code. It's a Babylonian text of laws from around the time of Abraham. It's an extra-biblical text. It's not a biblical text, but it's a cultural code of ethics and law. Actually says this. When a free man marries a priestess and she gave him... A female sl- or, and she gave a female slave to her husband, and she was to then bore ch- or bear children to the husband. If later that female slave has claimed equality with the mistress, because she bore children, her mistress may not sell her. She may mark her with a slave mark and count her among the slaves. So even the Hammurabi code, code basically says, huh, when a wife gives her husband a maidservant to have children because she can't. One of the problems that can occur, the unintended consequences, is that slave may ultimately see herself as equal to the wife, and it's now going to cause some tension. And the code says that that wife can then sort of put that maidservant back in her place, make her a slave again. Now that's the Hammurabi Code. Hammurabi Code. That's not what the Bible says. But look at what Sarah actually does. She does exactly what that code says. If you look down into verses 5 and 6, And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. She now blames Abram for this. Which, you know what? God blamed Adam, did he not? Because he listened to his wife. Abram's at fault here. But she points a finger at him. But that doesn't exonerate her because she was guilty too, right? 
I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. What does Sarai do then? Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. So in many respects, she acted just like the code said. Put her in her place. Sarai is now mistreating Hagar. Because Hagar despises her. There's tons of guilt to go around here, isn't there? From Abram's part, to Hagar's part, to Sarai's part. They're all guilty. These are the unintended consequences, the mess that has been created because they chose to do what the culture said was appropriate instead of simply waiting on the Lord. So what's our takeaway from this? I would say it this way. Human solutions and cultural customs are never a substitute for waiting on God and can lead to unintended consequences. Let me repeat that. Human solutions and cultural customs are never a substitute for waiting on God and can lead to unintended consequences. Um, We see this with Sarai here. Just in these first six verses, she has an opportunity to wait on the Lord, but instead of waiting, says, nah, the Lord's preventing it. I got a better plan. And so she follows the custom of the day. It felt normal to her. It felt natural to her. It's what the world did. But they weren't called to that. Abram was called to leave the world in some respects. Then I'll follow God. But here they are still participating in the customs and the culture around them. The result was nothing but conflict and sin. Abraham fathered a child with someone other than his wife. Hagar became prideful and despised her mistress. Sarai resented Abram and blamed him for something she initiated. She even mistreated Hagar and drove her away. Like I said, there's plenty of sin to go around here. We shouldn't expect anything different than what the results are here because they didn't wait on the Lord. You know, I think about, and I I talk about this often, how I get discouraged sometimes when I look around and I see the American church here. Um, You see parts of the world where the church is exploding in growth and here we are in America where the church is shrinking. Our influence is not felt like it once was. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. Um, but I'm convinced that one of the reasons is because the church has become too much like the world. You know, think about this. Jesus told us the way to build his church. Anybody remember what that was? He gave us marching orders. He gave us the steps, if you will, the building blocks to the church. And what was it? He says, we make disciples by doing what? By going, which means to be about in the world, by baptizing, which is the idea of conversion. is You preach the gospel and you convert people. But then the other part of that is by teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. That's how we make disciples. And if we do that as a church, the church grows in terms of the universal church, right? That's the way that it works. But what has the church done in many respects? We have chosen to do other things in many respects. You know, I think about back, I told you before, when I think back about my work at the Christian radio station up in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, um, there is a huge move to ultimately sort of um, focus more on political power and influence and that and and back then it really was about hey if we can just mobilize and if we can just um, engage ourselves more politically then we can build the church it wasn't about um, anything other than building the church initially we can do this once we have power we can enact laws that will radically change this nation and bring us back to our roots and we can build the church that was the thought and that was the goal there was a good motive behind it how well has that worked out 
Likewise, the movement towards this seeker-sensitive thing, which was, well, instead of us being in the world but not of the world, we're now going to become of the world and we'll look like the world, and by doing that we'll become attractive to the world, and they'll all come to us. And so we began to hand over the, the service and the church, our church time to the unsaved world to try to make us look more like them so that they might feel more comfortable coming in. And so the whole seeker-sensitive movement, it blew up in our face. Because the church became so much like the world that we were no longer effective in reaching the world. And we see the impact of that today. And so I use that as another example that, in some respects, waiting on the Lord would have simply been, do it like Jesus said, even if it's not fast and furious. Do it like Jesus said. Let's go about in the world, but not of the world. Let's share the gospel. And then let's teach them to obey everything Jesus has said. What are we doing today when it comes to teaching? We have compromised in so many areas now. Well, that's a non... That, that, that's sort of a... We don't need that anymore. That just causes controversy. I mean, look at the number of churches now that have, I'll say, labeled themselves as affirming. Or even those churches that aren't willing to go that far but don't even want to talk about the subject anymore. Why? It's offensive and we'll drive them away. You know, um, waiting on the Lord is doing it the way the Lord said to do it. And wait, even if it's not fast and furious... Even if we don't always see this radical growth, it's just trusting the Lord that if we share the gospel as we go about, as we go in the world, sharing the gospel, teaching them to obey everything the Lord says, the Lord will build his church, right? And so we struggle sometimes. Um, we try to become like the world, follow the world's patterns. Um, sometimes watching the marketing for many Christian churches today makes my skin crawl when I see what they're advertising and I see what they're marketing and I've shared this before with you the flyers and the cards we get around Easter time often times advertising everything from Easter buddies to jump houses and all kinds of stuff and you go is Jesus even mentioned on this flyer anywhere? Well, we can just get him in the door then we tell him about Jesus I struggle with that a little bit no, I struggle with a lot I'll be honest um We've become so much like the world. That's not waiting on the Lord. That's not, remember, waiting on the Lord is this concept of faithfully trusting in Him to do things the way that He says to do them. And in this case, with Abraham and Sarai, He said, I'll give you a child. I'll give you a seed. Just wait. But they got tired of waiting. Let's move on. The second part of this, what we're going to see is when God meets Hagar, we see that the Lord is a God who sees us and He responds to our affliction. It's not like he's just sitting up there ignoring us. When we feel like maybe we've been waiting a long time for something and we wonder if God is there, we might be tempted to think he's not paying attention, he doesn't see us, he's abandoned us. But that's not at all the case. In fact, quite the opposite is true. Look at verses 7 through 14. Now the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness. This is Hagar. Hagar had run away. By the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? 
And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child and you will bear a son. And you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all of his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore, the well was called Deir Lahai Roi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Barad. One of the keys to understanding the intent of these eight verses, I believe, is to understand the three names that are given in this context. But, before we do that, there's four things I want to point out that actually lead up to the revelation of those three names. Now, there's three primary names given. One's given by Hagar. I'm sorry, by God to Hagar's child. One is given to God by Hagar, and then one is given to the well. And so we'll get to that in just a second. But again, I want to point out four things that sort of lead to the revelation of these names. The first thing... I want to highlight is that in these verses the angel of the Lord actually finds Hagar at the well at Shur. The phrase the angel of the Lord is typically a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ, not always, but quite often. It is the way that, you know, when we think about one of the one of the purposes of Jesus is to reveal God the Father to us, and we see that actually in the Old Testament where Jesus Christ takes on flesh or the semblance of flesh and appears in human form to people like Abram, or in this case, to Hagar. So this is likely the pre-incarnate Christ that is speaking to her. Now verse 13 says that it's the angel of the Lord that finds her. What this tells me is that the Lord actually sought her out. She didn't stumble upon the Lord. The Lord saw her sitting there. And so I find that interesting that it's the Lord who actually sought her out. He knew she was there. The second thing is that the Lord is genuinely concerned or interested in her plight. Go back into verse 8. He asked her a question. Hagar, Sarah's maid, or Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, that's a rhetorical question. He's obviously God incarnate. He knows. But it shows an interest in her. He engages her in conversation. He knows where she's going, but he talks to her. You ever see that, like with your old kids, where you know maybe what they're struggling with, and yet you go in and you ask them questions? Why? Because you're concerned. You're interested. Kimberly brought this up, I think, last night with someone. She's like, why do you ask that? And I'm like, because I'm your dad. And she's like, yeah, but you know. And I'm like, of course I know, but I'm engaging you in conversation. I want you to know that I'm interested. And I'm interested in your life and what you're doing. But in her mind, it was a foolish question because, of course you know, you're my dad. Yes, I do. I'm all-knowing as your dad. But it's my way of expressing interest. I want you to know that I see and I'm interested. And that's the same thing we see here with Sarai. So that's the second thing is that God sees her. He's interested in her. The third thing we see is that the Lord's response to her isn't necessarily changing her circumstance. Did you see that? What does he actually do here? She's running away because she doesn't want to be under the thumb of Sarai. And his answer is, uh, go back to Sarai and submit to her authority. The Lord was not going to change her circumstances. 
But he will change something else. It's going to be what goes on inside of her. He makes a promise to her. He sends her back with some kind of hope. His promise to her. So he doesn't necessarily change her circumstance. And sometimes when it comes to us, when, when we no longer want to wait, what we're really waiting on is we want God to change the circumstance, don't we? Hey, I've been dealing with this skin prickliness stuff now since last summer. I'm tired of waiting. And what I really want to see is I want it to go away. <laughs> I want God to change the circumstance, but I know that he may not change that circumstance. Well, what will he do? He'll do something else. Even Paul himself, when he begged God to take the thorn out of his flesh, whatever that was, Paul said, I prayed three times. Three strikes, you're out. And what was God's response to him? I'll give you my grace. And my grace will be sufficient for you. And Paul from that then goes, I'd much much rather boast in my weaknesses because the power of God is seen in those things. God didn't change his circumstance. But Paul had to wait on the Lord to give him an answer for the thorn in his flesh. And the answer might not have been what Paul expected, but it was nonetheless an answer from God and a gracious answer because God said, I'm not going to change your circumstance, Paul, but I will give you the grace to not just endure it, but to thrive, to see my power expressed through that. And so the third thing we see there is God didn't change your circumstances for her. But what does he do? The fourth thing we see is the Lord's blessing to Hagar in the midst of that struggle. Notice he says that she would have a son and he says he would greatly multiply her descendants. It wasn't just one son. There would be many children, ultimately, or many descendants. In fact, it says too many to count. That sounds an awful lot like Abram, doesn't it? Too many to count. One thing that struck me about this as far as I can tell, and correct me if you, if you, you know, go home and look, I believe that this is the only time that promise is made to a woman in the scriptures. This promise of many descendants was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I can't find another example where God makes that same exact promise to a woman. She stands out in that respect. That her seeds will be multiplied like the stars of the sky, the sands of the sea. What an amazing blessing to Hagar for being put into a position she probably couldn't have refused. She was the maidservant. She did what she was told to do. It created this dynamic, this unbearable circumstance. What a blessing the Lord gives to her. Genesis 25 records the fulfillment of this promise with Ishmael having 12 sons who ultimately populated the northern part of the Arabian Arabian Peninsula. Verse 12 also indicates, however, that there was going to be conflict between Sarai and Hagar, between the descendants of Ishmael and ultimately, probably, Israel to some degree. He would be a wild donkey of a man. That means probably that he would be sort of a solitary traveler in many respects. And that's what they were. The Arabs were Benduins, essentially. Um, says that he would live to the east of his brothers. This is a challenging one. I almost called Matt on this. It's difficult um, English translations are all over the place in this. Some translate it literally as he'll live to the east of his brothers. Others render it as an idiom, meaning that he'd live at odds or conflict with his brethren. Um, I probably lean in that direction. Um, that, but again, um, it's not hypercritical. What we take away from this text is that there's any conflict. I see Matt probably pulling out his Hebrew there to look that up. So, but again, it's kind of a difficult at least from what I can see in the translation, it's a difficult thing to render. But So the fourth thing we see is that 
the Lord blesses her in the midst of her struggle. He actually saw her there. And he answers her there as well at the time of her greatest need. So what we have here is this beautiful picture of God seeing and responding to Hagar's plight. And that ultimately now leads us to the revelation of these three names. And you're going to see how those three names relate directly to what we just talked about here. It actually emphasizes the theme. The first name originates with God himself. It's found in verse 11. It's when he actually tells her what to name this child. He says to name the child Ishmael. Now that word Ishmael comes from two Hebrew words that are crammed together. One word is here, the other is God. And therefore, his name means God hears or God will hear. God even provided a reason why he wanted the child named that. Look at what he says in verse 11 again. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, you'll bear a son, you shall name his name or call his name Ishmael. Why? Because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. The Lord has heard you. And again, when we think of this idea of the Lord hearing us in the Old Testament, it means that he hears and acts. It isn't just that God's up there going, Yeah, I caught that. I physically heard that. No, for God to hear throughout the Old Testament means that God answers. He acts. And so he says, name the child, God hears. Think about what a reminder that must have been for all of Ishmael's growing up. As Hagar, every time she looked at this son, and she would, whether it's, you know, Ishmael, stop doing this. Ishmael, don't do that. Ishmael, come here. Every time she said that, she'd be reminded God heard me. Isn't that remarkable? The second name originated with Hagar, and it's what she named God. Go back to verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her there, and we don't show the uh, transliteration of the Hebrew here, we just have the phrase, you are a God who sees. And there's a bit of a word play there, for she said, have I remained alive here after seeing him? She kind of does a word play there. He's a God who sees, so she gives him a name, And how am I here after seeing him? And so the Hebrew phrase that she uses there is El-Roi, which is a combination of the word God and seeing, or in other words, the God who sees or the seeing God. So there she is. God has just told her, name your son the God who hears, and now she names God the God who sees. In all likelihood, the God who saw me sitting here. And again, the idea of God seeing carries that idea of God acting as well. He not only hears and acts, he sees and acts as well. Now the last name is found in verse 14, and it's the name that is given to the well. It doesn't say who named the well, but it's the name given to the well where God met Hagar. It's Bir Baha'i Roi. Essentially it means the well belonging to the living one who has seen me. Hagar emphasizes that God sees and responds because he's a living God which differentiates him from the false dead idols of the Canaanites. They were not gods who were alive. They could not act on anyone's behalf. But God can. And the reason God sees, the reason God hears is because God is alive. Praise God for that. The reason God can act on our behalf, the reason God sees us and can, can do the things that we need Him to do when we cry out to Him is because He is alive. Because He's alive, He can see and hear. So what's the takeaway? When we find ourselves struggling to wait on the Lord, we have to remind ourselves that we have a living God who sees us. He's there. He's listening. He sees us. 
But even beyond that, He acts on our behalfs. Turn to Psalm chapter 34. Psalm 34. The Psalm of David says that this is when he feigned his craziness before Abimelech and drove him away. But listen to what David wrote. I will bless the Lord at all times. I will praise, or his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. My soul will, I'm sorry, my soul will make a boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and what? He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. So far we've seen this balance between God hearing and God asking, God hearing and rescuing. Verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Remember the idea of waiting on the Lord meant to place one's faith and trust in him? That's reflected here again. O fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but... They who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good and seek and pursue it. Then look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all, or keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, or evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Do you see the balance there between the Lord hearing, the Lord seeing, the Lord rescuing? That's the kind of God we have. When we wait on him, he sees because he's a living God. And the fact that he sees and hears means that he will act on our behalf. So we don't have to take matters in our own hands. We don't have to come up with schemes. We don't have to to look at something the world says is right and do that to try to figure out how to have our needs met or to make things work out the way that we think they should. Why? We should wait on the Lord. He sees And that applies with everything from job decisions to school decisions to how we deal with people, how we... I've shared my own struggles sometimes with work with some of the managers that I've had to deal with. And sometimes it just involves waiting on the Lord to figure that out and to deal with it. Rather than taking matters into my own hands and doing what the world says I should do. Because that always leads to unintended consequences. Go back to Genesis chapter 16 and we'll wrap up with the last couple of verses. Genesis chapter 16 verses 15 through 16. It says, So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, who Hagar had born, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. And so God fulfills his promise, Ishmael is born. So just as God had promised her, it's been fulfilled. But I have to wonder as I think about this. So, I wonder if Abram, every time he looked at Ishmael, and I wonder if every time Sarai looked at Ishmael, what they might have thought. Because I would assume that as Hagar came back from this 
visit to the wilderness, she likely shared her experience with the two of them. Because how could you not? You go running out in the wilderness and the God of the universe shows up, probably in physical form, because she saw him, and talks to you and promises you this great promise. How can you not share that? And I have to wonder if maybe... Every time they saw Ishmael, if there was a little element of rebuke, we didn't wait on the Lord. His name is that God hears. He heard Hagar. Maybe we should have waited. So would there have maybe been a little bit of rebuke in Ishmael's name, but also encouragement? We should wait on the Lord. Now it would be another, I think, 14 years here that they had to wait before God would fulfill his promise to Abraham. And maybe God did that so that Abraham and Sarai might learn And it doesn't hurt to have that little name Ishmael there as a constant reminder. God hears. So yeah, after 10 years we didn't wait. We kind of screwed up. And now it's going on year 12 and year 13 and year 14 and we're still waiting. Year 15. God hears. 15, 16, 17. God hears. So maybe Ishmael served that purpose as well. So we should be encouraged. The Bible tells us to wait on the Lord, which means to place our faith and trust in Him just in everyday life and things that we need. The New Testament is filled with examples of of us being told that we can ask the Lord for whatever we need, and the Lord will hear and the Lord will deliver. Now we know that's not just some blanket promise that I can pray for whatever I want and I get it. That's not at all it. We're told to wait on the Lord. We're told to, to present our needs before Him. And we can be assured that because He's a living God, He will hear And he will see. He knows what we need. In fact, the Holy Spirit says even when we pray, what? We don't know how we should pray. And he will then pray on our behalf in words and groaning that we can't even comprehend. And so even the Holy Spirit is there beseeching the Lord on our behalf so that the Lord sees and hears and will ultimately act. So should we not be willing to wait? Or do we rather take things into our own hand and then face the possible unintended consequences? We should wait. Amen?